Hello and welcome to a brand new season of the British Food History Podcast. I'm Dr Neil Butchery. I've got some good topics lined up. We've got a little bit of housekeeping to do before I get on with the actual episode. First up, now, things aren't going to be quite as regular as they've been for the first two seasons. I was very good at getting new episodes out every Sunday. It's going to be a bit more ad hoc this time. I apologise now in advance. I've just got so many plates to keep spinning. I can't say that I'm going to be able to get one done every single Sunday. But there's three lined up for December. And then I might have to have a couple of weeks off to get some bits and bobs done. And then we'll pick up from there. I'll keep you posted as things develop. But more importantly, how have you been since we last checked in together? Okay, I hope. I've got a bit of news which I consider a little bit exciting. I popped up on the TV. Christmas Cakes and Bakes on Channel 5, the best of all the channels. And if you're in the UK, you can go onto the Channel 5 streaming service, My5, and check it out. I'll leave a link in the show notes if you want to have a look. I look into the history of Christmas cake, look at Christmas pottage, and some old uh, Christmas adverts. It was good fun. Also, my book, A Dark History of Sugar, published by Pen and Sword History, is out on the 30th of March, and it is now available to pre-order. I've spotted it on the Waterstones website, as well as the Amazon one too. Again, there'd be a link in the show notes if anybody wants to check that out. I would be most grateful. Also, subscribers to the podcast, check out the Easter egg tabs, because you might have missed it, but between season two and season three, there was an extra mini one, all about forgotten foods. If you're not a subscriber, I'll talk about that at the end of the episode. I don't want to chunter on for ages. We want to get on with this week's topic, which is a dark history of chocolate, with with food historian Emma Kay. She's written several books already, including Foots, Lonks and Wet Nellies, Lancashire's Food and Drink, and A History of Baking. But I talked to her about the dark side of chocolate. You may notice it's a very similar title to my book. That's because we're kind of pen-sword siblings when it comes to writing. The Dark History of dot 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 is a kind of a series of a few books. There's also um, one about tea. It's the first time I'd ever talked to Emma and we had a really good chat. We talked about how chocolate found its way to Europe, looked at chocolate houses, the exploitation of workers and consumers, and how chocolate is the perfect vehicle for your poison of choice. But first of all, we had a little talk about how she approached the book and what she considers to be dark. I'll be back at the end of the podcast to chunter on a little bit more. Hello, Emma. Congratulations on the publication of the book, A Dark History of Chocolate. Yeah, thank you very much. It's I, I'm uh, really grateful that you've got me on your podcast, actually. It's lovely to chat to you, Neil. Yeah, it's nice to finally meet. We've inter- interacted a lot on Twitter and what have you. I know. You sometimes think, are these people real? So let's uh, let's begin in the beginning. Why did you write a book about chocolate? Well, I guess I was I was directly approached to write it by Pen and Sword. So I hadn't really thought about it, to be honest. And I think they were looking for someone to take a different spin on the history of chocolate. You know, there are so many books out there about chocolate. Mm-hmm. There's so many fluffy 
books about how lovely it is, how wonderful it is, cooking with chocolate, enjoying chocolate. Chocolate's a wonderful thing. Yeah. It's about time we started dealing with some of the, the you know, the history of chocolate and, and why we have it and all the rest of it. But they, I think they'd already done a dark history of tea as well. So they mm-hmm. were kind of looking for a bit of a series. So, um, and I know you're going to be doing dark history of sugar. Yes, indeed. They wanted to to look at that darker element and they wanted to explore things like, you know, cultural appropriation, oppression, exploitation and all those things. And especially the society we're living in now, I think it's time that we we kind of address some of those things with chocolate and sugar and tea and all those other things, you know, that we that we don't. So I think it was important to write it. Also, I didn't want it to just be a book about slavery. You know, that is just one element of the story. And so I was a bit worried that that is what might happen. So there's actually, even though I have written about slavery, I haven't written about it that much, but for for deliberate reasons, because I just didn't want it to take over because it so easily could just be a whole book about that. Yes, I mean, I had that issue with the sugar book. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, Except you can't, you have to go both feet in with the um with the slavery and sugar because it was the main driver it's a it's a massive thing isn't it and i know that when i worked in museums i used to um i used to run a lot of because especially working at national maritime museum i used to run a lot of events and projects based around the history of slavery and i used to have some very difficult debates and conversations and lectures about it and i just thought I just, uh, you know, I know kind of a lot about it, but I just didn't want to go there. And it's a story that needs to be told. But as you're you're right, sugar is is a much bigger area in terms of sugar is vast, actually. I don't even know where you'd start with that. Overwhelming. I mean, it's huge, isn't it? Huge. I mean, well done you for tackling that. But also there are other stories, you know, and I think we need to sort of balance it a little bit. I mean, I really liked in your introduction where you kind of almost define what dark means to you. Yeah. It's actually, when you sit down and think about it, it's much more broad and varied than you would, than you might initially think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you think, well, for me, I just thought of everything, you know, from being afraid of the dark and the monsters and you know, witchcraft and magic and murder and poison, um, abuse, you know, all those kind of things. And then also the the physical side was obviously dark chocolate, just the colour. And uh, and so I kind of broke it down into chapters as well (laughs) of dark and milk and, and white. So, yeah, I guess that's the thing. It's such a broad word isn't it Mm. and it has it can have different connotations for everyone I think that word really but yeah for me that's how I kind of worked through the the process of it I just thought okay so what about murder what about poison what about you know what about witchcraft what about all the things that that we generally associate with the dark or I do and that's how I wrote it yeah but it's you know it's it's a great book and what's really good is you have relatively short sections you split the chapters into sub-chapters, which just makes it very easy to read and quick to read. In fact, you kind of read more when you know, oh, I'll just read an extra couple of pages because this bit's only two pages long <laughs> uh, before you know you've read it all. Uh, but it doesn't feel like a whistle-stop tour either. Oh, great. Oh, good. I'm glad you think that, Neil. I like that it's peppered with loads of recipes. 
because it helps with context a little bit, I think. Yeah. And, you know, that was the first time really in a book that I've done it. And I'm now going to do it more. Um, And I actually tried out some of those recipes and I enjoyed going looking for those recipes. And the recipes basically just link in to lots of things within the book. Let's have a little chat about the origins of, of chocolate. How was chocolate and where was chocolate originally drunk? Well, you have to go way, way back, kind of, I don't know, about 4,000 years. And if you think about Central and South America, mm-hmm. those really ancient cultures. So the first people to start consuming chocolate were the Olmecs, and they are community tribe of people. They're known for those great big stone heads. And, uh, and so the Olmecs passed their knowledge down to the Mayans and then the Mayans passed their knowledge down to the Aztecs and it all stems from you know the cacao tree uh, Theobrahma food of the gods and they were able to uh, use the beans from the pods and they would dry them and they would grind them down um, until they were liquid and they added lots of different spices, particularly in Mexico, call it Mexico, obviously it wasn't that then, particularly cinnamon and chili. And it was extremely important to all, all those communities. So they had gods that they worshipped around the cacao and cacao tree. So they had Ix Cacao, uh, the Mayans did, who was like a goddess of fertility. And then there were other gods that represented different aspects of uh, merchants and growing cacao. And it was very important that they kept these gods happy. So, you know, they did uh, human sacrifices to these gods. And it was a, a, a huge part of their culture. And of course, it was it was extremely valuable. So they also use cow beans as currency. So, yes, it, enormously important to them. Yeah, it just sounds I'm trying to think of an equivalent, even though I'm not a Christian, but I'm trying to think yeah. of the equivalent. I guess it's like, I don't know, bread and wine to maybe Christians. Yeah. It's just fully integrated yes, into how definitely. you think about the religion and daily life. That's really interesting analogy, but because what they used to do is they be, be, the color of the cacao to make it more like the color of blood. They used to add ashy oat seeds, so they break that down and make it to this thick brown reddish kind of drink. Um, so it was almost you know like that, like the like the like human blood. So yeah, that's that's great. Do you know I I never made that association. And these drinks, what what would they have tasted like? Would it be anything we'd recognise as a, a modern day, I don't know, hot chocolate? Well, no, uh, because they didn't use milk. So it just would have been the, grown, the ground beans mixed with water and spices. Uh, they just would have drunk that hot or cold. It's nothing like the chocolate that we have now. I actually do it quite regularly myself. There's um, like a little three-legged grinder that's made of volcanic rock that certainly the Aztecs used all the time called a matate and you grind your cacao beans on that and while warming it up underneath and then you'd mix the uh, spices in with that they then turn that into a tablet you then kind of break that down into water stir it into the water and then you have your drink and actually I have to say it tastes flipping lovely it really really does like a little chocolate stock cube, pop it in and 
dissolve yeah, it. Yeah, it is so, so nice. I think it's actually nicer, the chocolate we have today. It's a lot stronger as well. Ooh. Is it not um, really, really bitter? Because I just imagined it'd be almost too bitter. It depends what you mix it with. Um, oh, okay. If you mix it, you know, like with a bit of vanilla or a bit of cinnamon or something that takes that that edge off, it's. I don't find it bitter, and it depends on the quality of the cacao bean, obviously. Sure. That's how they did it, and that's how we then we we did it the same way. In I say we, uh, that's how they did it across Europe. Oh, okay. So they pretty much just translated it fairly accurately when they when the Portuguese yeah. or was it the Spanish? I forget. Uh, Spanish. Well, there's a whole mishmash of ideas, really, to to suggest how chocolate came into Europe. I mean, the the main big sort of story. I was. I mean, we all know about 1492 and Columbus and how the Americas were discovered. Well, actually, it was the Vikings that discovered. But yeah, don't mention that bit. <laughs> yeah, Spanish and Portuguese. They were the lords of exploration, and they discovered the Americas. And they started to colonize parts of the Americas. They are the famous kind of privateer called, uh, or conquistador called Hernan Cortez, rocked up with his boat. I think they actually were looking to just do repairs on the boat. Right. And they came across what we now know as Mexico City. They very quickly got the idea that there was something good going on here. The community uh, was very strong. There were things to be had. There were things they could exploit, take away. And so uh, Cortes kept trying to get a meeting together with Montezuma, who was, I guess, a leader of the Aztec tribe at the time. And it was refused. He kept refusing it because Montezuma had seen something bad in the Aztec calendar and it prophesied bad things to come. So, which is really interesting. Mm, that calendar was right, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. So oh he probably goodness. should have stuck to his guns. Awful. Yeah. Yeah. Cortes was very clever. He started ingratiating himself and his men into the community and they became more and more friendly. And then eventually Montezuma backed down and he's like, okay, yeah, hey, let's let's meet, let's talk. And Montezuma laid on great feasts for them. And there are some examples of those feasts in, in my book. Very lavish. They, you know, he entertained them. He would have told them about chocolate obviously they would have drunk it themselves they would have mm -hmm. enjoyed it they would have seen the benefits of it then uh sadly of course the inevitable happened and they overthrew Montezuma and his people Montezuma was killed and from then on they would have captured that area then they took the cacao beans back with them but that doesn't necessarily mean that they were the first to do that there are stories about uh, Mayan leaders coming to Spain and introducing cacao much earlier Columbus is always said to have done it but when he took it to Philip of Spain he was just like not interested what happened from the time of Cortes is it's suddenly started to become popular so the Spanish were drinking it. They took it back to Spain or whoever took it back to Spain. It's all these things are contentious, aren't they? You can't say that one thing happened and, and then that's how it, you know, that rarely happens in history. Yeah, it was just an explosion. It's all a yeah. bit of a big mess. There's, yeah, it's really hard. They reckon that it was probably the Italians that were the first Europeans to sample it and take it back. And then the French 
uh, it was given as a gift, wasn't it, to Louis the Fourteenth, and then it exploded throughout Versailles and everywhere. So there are there are lots of little moments that uh, at which time you can say, oh, that may have been the trigger for it going there. It may have been the trigger for it going there. And of yeah. course, by this point, you've got other explorers. So you've got the Dutch coming in. You've got the French coming in. You've got the English much later, actually. They were very late to that whole kind of exploitation part. They made up for it, though, didn't they? <laughs> they certainly did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's, there's a, a lot of people would say that the Dutch were some of the first to use it commercially. I think because the Dutch had a really strong foothold in North America at that point, so they would have had good access. And I think they were probably the first ones to open chocolate houses for sure. Yeah, so that's basically, you know, simply how it put it. And then, of course, those countries, so you had your, your French and your Dutch and your English, you know, they were all colonizing areas around South America and in the West Indies. And then they were reaching out to other countries, especially Germany in Africa, and they were taking the cacao and then planting it in their in their own countries that they'd you know colonized or regions that they'd colonized. And that really didn't happen till about the mid 1700s. Yeah, I guess for the the British, it's the end of the 17th century where we can kind of talk about the British history of chocolate and it's the coffee houses where it first appears and then you get proper chocolate houses yeah in terms of commercially i mean it's an interesting thing isn't it because people always associate this country with tea everything sort of happened at once so you get coffee was definitely first i think um you get coffee then you get chocolate and then you get tea all around the same sort of time and undoubtedly chocolate would have been expensive early on because you know it we hadn't been able to find our own way of um, our own plantations and we did have early plantations in the West Indies and we were experimenting but there were all kinds of issues going on there warring with the Spanish and the Dutch about those so it was still expensive but yeah you have the chocolate houses this big explosion of chocolate houses all around the country really that they kind of they sort of linked in with the existing coffee houses so you'd go into these places and for a couple of pence you'd get a cup of coffee or or a cup of chocolate and these places shot up everywhere one of the first was in Oxford but then there were very early ones in uh, London as well and these were probably like a bit like your old Starbucks or Costas today they were places where people would meet gather uh, talk but but not anyone, you know, a lot of the hoi polloi, a lot of businessmen, a lot of the Navy, a lot of writers, a lot of artistic people would come together and and, and share and talk. Um, it's where a lot of business was done. Uh, a lot of these places were also of ill repute. They were fronts for prostitution and all kinds of other things I wouldn't even want to think about. They must have been hugely interesting places. Oh, it's just one of my favourite things. I know, isn't oh, it? Oh, they just sound so exciting. Yeah. The good ones and the dodgy ones are like, I just would have loved to be a fly on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to be a fly on the wall. And to think that, you know, probably an awful lot of business would have been done, important business that would have changed. Wars were created, you know. You had Tory houses, so houses that were very kind of uh, pro kind of Church of England. And then you had... Uh, wig houses which were very pro sort of parliament so you had 
very different establishments for different types of people and different politics in different areas of politics. Didn't, didn't the Royal Society yes. originally get created in the chocolate houses or coffee houses? Yeah, and certainly, you know, the, the East India Company, all those sort of things, they were mm. all would have started in those places. But they were rowdy. When you look, look at the records, there's all kinds of incidents of fights outside and inside, um, fights over women. The interesting thing is that they, I, I mean, they say that they sold tea, uh, they sold coffee and chocolate, but I'm sure there must have been other things being added to that coffee and chocolate because a lot of people did seem to go off the rails when they were in those houses. Yeah. I mean, I heard that they were open, they were open late and then they switched from coffee to port. So they were busy all day, but I think they were open till sort of 2 a.m., maybe even mm. earlier, later than that. Fascinating stories to be had there. Yeah, and right from their inception, they were notorious for their, well, depending what side of the argument you're on, lively debate on one yeah. side or, I guess, plotting on the other yeah. side. And Charles II had a bit of a bee in his bonnet about them, yes. didn't he? Yes, well, probably because he was worried that there were so many powerful people meeting and, and to, to plot political downfalls, downfalls mm. of royalty. Um, yes, and I guess Barry Man is just back on the throne. Oh, the fact there's the fact that there's a monarchy back on the throne. Exactly. So yeah, he'd have been gonna, pretty scared, wouldn't he? Yeah, it wasn't going to risk anything. So yes, he tried to have them all banned, and I think it worked very temperate, but it didn't. It didn't. You know, it didn't. Uh, I think they were too powerful, too strong. It just overcame. You know, everything. I'm trying to think of something like that now where you would have those kind of, uh, where you'd have that amount of power. You know, it it just doesn't, there isn't anywhere. Yeah, no, that's very, yes, really clever, actually. Yeah, you're right. Except it's much less polite on Twitter, I'm sure. But yeah, I guess that's the forum now, isn't it? That is your forum for people to let off steam, to kind of join in those kind of groups and gangs and either be nice or nasty. Indeed. The group's a bit too big, I suppose. That's the difference. But um, let's just go to the other side of the, uh, or the other end of the spectrum. Book that I'm researching in a minute, Mole King popped up. And lo and behold, I'm reading yours. <laughs> there she <laughs> and is. And a bit about Mole King. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought we should talk about her because I think she's fantastic. Well, yeah, she is fantastic. And I think possibly maybe a little bit mixed up in history. She was married to someone called Tom King, who ran uh, King's uh, Coffee House. Now, that was definitely a front for uh, prostitution and goodness knows what else. Drugs, probably all kinds of things. Yes, because I mean, it's also the peak of kind of opium, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Yeah, she was really notorious. Uh, She had quite an attitude. I don't know if you've seen, there is kind of one portrait of her where she just looks like you really, someone you really wouldn't want to mess with. I think she is supposed to be based on the book of Mole Flanders, who, um, a lady of also slight ill repute, well, only in the sense that I think she had children outside of marriage and was a prostitute and all kinds of things who was aspiring always aspiring more Flanders wasn't she so and I guess maybe she was and she's always forthright but in a very charming way very very you know it was never really that offensive or maybe it was at the time most things were being written by men and you know we don't know really she she may have been a completely different type of character but yeah, she gets a lot of bad press, does Mole, a lot of bad press. Yeah, I mean, she was a dodgy character. I think she got done, basically, and got sent to the colonies as an indentured servant. 
Is that oh, right? Yes, so several times, I think. She was always Oh really? Oh yeah, she was and she was always in and out of prison. Yeah. You know, her life was just crazy. But I uh, from what I've gathered, she did actually have quite a lot of money. You know, she'd managed managed to gather together quite a bit of money. Somewhere I read, I can't remember, she she did leave a lot of money as well. She was she certainly gained her wealth. Yes, such an interesting woman. I don't know why there isn't more about her. There should be movies about her. No, but hers would be perfect. Even if it was just a documentary about her would be yeah, good, wouldn't it? Yeah, so interesting. And a documentary about the coffee houses, about what went on, you know. Well, whilst we're on the subject of more Flanders and, and prostitution and decadence, she certainly was decadent. Chocolate still has a decadent aspect to it now, even though it's cheap. Yeah. It feels like luxury, even if yeah. it's just you know, about dairy milk. Yeah. Oh, it does for me anyway. It is very decadent still. It's funny, isn't it? it interesting, you know, you don't get, ca- there's no caffeine in, in in chocolate. People always think there's caffeine in it. There isn't. But it does, it does, you know, accelerate chemicals in your brain, serotonin, dopamine, which can give you a high, you know, serotonin makes you feel good, makes you feel a bit sleepy, but can... You know, and then the dopamine counteracts that by making you feel really happy. So, yes, it it definitely can trigger things. And Mm. also then when you add things to it, like sugar or milk, then you're you're adding other things on top of that, aren't you? Which can. Yeah. All those neurochemicals that are releasing your brain. So I got I don't have many spats on Twitter, but I did have one brief spat on Twitter because I said that sugar is a drug. Right. And yeah. if you addict, when you're addicted to sugar, I mean, I'm a bit of a sugar addict. I'm not going to yeah, yeah. lie. Yeah. And writing yeah, a book about the dark history of it did not stop me eating it. I was happily eating donuts whilst writing about diabetes. <laughs> I ate a lot more chocolate writing the chocolate book. It's weird, isn't yeah. it? Just didn't put me writing. off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, t- I'm really terrible. Yeah, somebody said to me on Twitter, and they were kind of right, saying, hang on a minute, it's not a drug. It's an important food group. Sugar, It's a carbohydrate. You need it. It's our, it's our source of energy. And it's a bit kind of, well, you know, and you don't want to shame people into saying they're some kind of drug addict because they're eating too much. So I kind of understood it because it isn't a drug. Drugs interact with your brain and go straight into your nervous system and you get this super big reaction. Whereas chocolate or sugar, you're eating it, and it's, a, it's our body in response is releasing its own chemicals. So that's not a drug. That's our body doing it to ourselves. Okay. But it's the same difference. I kind, yeah. of, I kind of think it's splitting hairs. I think it's a drug. I think both are drugs because I think, I think you become dependent. Anything you become dependent on is a drug, surely. Yeah, and you can be exploited. I mean, that's yeah. the other, you know, we're talking about exploitation of, of workers, yeah. But there's exploitation of consumers as well. Gosh, definitely. And haven't uh, hasn't chocolate historically done a great job of that? I mean, you know, so often we associate it with uh, seducing, with, you know, I was just thinking of the milk tray advert then. It's just popped into my yeah. mind. Can you imagine um, if that actually happened? Yeah. Some bloke had swung in through your window. <laughs> but you'd be a bit freaked out. You'd be straight on to the police. 
but there is that there is you know they've always marketed it towards women as well haven't they so there's that the allure the sexiness of it and then there's then there's the element of the all women obviously who are premenstrual probably far too much information for you but you know they obviously really need chocolate to help them get through that you know that terrible time every month there is always that element running throughout it isn't it and they're constantly pushing that all the time. There are whole books you could write just about the marketing of chocolate, aren't there? One thing just made me think there when you you were talking, it's also obviously advertised towards children. And it was the um, the Five Boys chocolate, chocolate bar, which people may or may not be. I'm trying to think. It looked, it was heavily advertised. I mean, we talk about companies like Coca-Cola and McDonald's. Yeah. But these early chocolate bars and companies were pretty much doing the equivalent of that in they were the clever, what, they? late Victorian era and Edwardians and onwards. Yeah, they were really on it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm always amazed, actually, at how early all that started, you know, because you tend to associate um, mass media and advertising and, and consumption with sort of post-war and all the rest of it, but post-Second World War. But really, my goodness, during the uh, even the Georgian age, Georgian Victorian, Georgian Victorian Edwardian, that whole period, I think, was, was saturated with um, you know advertisements and kind of mass consumerism. It's really fascinating, isn't it? Really fascinating area. You got a section right at the beginning about poisoners with a preference for chocolate. Georgian and Victorian society was full of people using chocolate to poison obviously it was fantastic because the color and the 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 flavor and even the smell could really easily mask a lot of poisons particularly arsenic if you actually just trawl through a lot of cases even if you just you know you go to the old bailey or wherever and it's like every day almost there's a case of someone trying to be poisoned or killed in within a family for some reason or another via chocolate uh so i don't think people really i cannot sort of emphasize enough how massive this was particularly in the victorian era to do this and you've got a couple of famous killers during that time so you've got someone called christina edmonds christina edmonds yes yeah she was kind of i think she's 1870s if I remember yeah. rightly. And what she did is she bought uh, lots of chocolates from a chocolate shop in Brighton. And then she went home and uh, she opened them all up and laced them with arsenic. Back then, obviously, it didn't have health and safety or any of that malarkey. She just sent them back to the chocolate shop saying, I don't want them anymore. Uh, said confectioner just resold them on back out into the community. So all these people throughout Brighton were were poisoned with these chocolate creams. I know one boy died, definitely, and then several other people were seriously ill with it. So she became known as the chocolate cream killer. She was massive in uh, at that time. It must have been quite a trial, actually. And the chocolate cream was a confection of choice, was it? So like a, basically, like um, fries, chocolate cream. Did they still make fries, chocolate cream? My mum used to eat that. It used to be her favourite. Chocolate creams, yeah, were just like a fondant mm-hmm. with chocolate over the top, with a hard chocolate paste around it. And they were hugely popular, really popular at that time. And so I think she, 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 you know, she went to Broadmoor. She was just insane. Then you get the case of Madeline Smith, who again is around the same bit later. I think she's probably 1880s, 1890s. Now, she was a 
gosh, that was that was really in the media. That was everywhere because she was um, came from a very wealthy, well-to-do family in Scotland. When she went to trial, it just it just oof, it was everywhere. Yeah, it's such an exciting story. Yeah, the media just loved it. They couldn't get enough of it. Um, and so she basically she'd had this kind of affair with this I can't even say a, a liaison with a man who was much lower level than her socially on the social class. She was excited, you know, she was experimenting, doing all sorts of things that she really shouldn't have been doing probably as a young lady back then. So she was having fun and leading him on. Um, and they used to meet illicitly in all kinds of places. He used to sort of come and wait outside for her and she'd go to his quarters, his boarding house or whatever. And then one day, another man comes into her life who has a lot of money, great prospects. And it's like, you know, ka-ching, you know, I'm going to marry this guy. That's it. So I need to somehow get rid of, you know, matey boy hanging around still, sort of mm-hmm. all forlorn and um, still in love with her, which is really sad. Um, so she's like, right, I've had enough of this. I you know, I keep telling him and he won't go away. So because he kept turning up uh, outside her gates um, of the house. And of course, it was getting a bit suspicious, I suppose. Maybe people were sure. noticing he was yeah. making a fuss. He was causing a scene sometimes. He was desperately in love with her. It's very sad. She, st- she agreed to, to sort of meet him if he, he kept coming outside the gates of the house around the back probably and so she'd meet him and 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 give him cups of nice cups of hot chocolate while he was waiting in the cold and they were talking very slowly uh you can see what's coming she was poisoning him with arsenic in the hot chocolate and so he was getting quite ill you know he'd have bouts of terrible illness and Mm -hmm. I think he talked to his landlady about it and he had his suspicions I think but he kept going back for more it's just like he must have just really I didn't realize arsenic was such a give you such a drawn out death. I always think of it as oh. extremely poisonous. You you eat oh. it and you know, you've carked it after a few minutes, but this is awful, horrible, really. Horrible. And I think you really had to know what you were doing because, you know, it's just a few grains, isn't it? Um, obviously I can't mm. speak from experience, but uh, I think it's a few <laughs> grains in, and, uh, and yeah, you just, I think you just keep vomiting and your stomach's trying to purge it out, isn't it? But so she did that over a long period of time. And there were also statements that came up in the court case she was going to the local shop and saying she needed arsenic to get rid of the rats in that house so and it was that easy then I suppose you just had to sign a thing didn't you and say what it was for yeah so she she eventually killed the poor man the thing about what what made it really interesting for the media I think was that they had a lot of correspondence between the two of them so they wrote a lot of letters to each other and he was found dead in his um, boarding house with her letters in, in his jacket pocket and so they oh, made right, that okay. connection and you know she was arrested and everything and went through but she got off she got off there was a big court case you know she was moneyed she was you know landed almost landed gentry she was of that kind of level and even the guy that had come into her life had said look I'll support you and marry you anyway Gosh, he must have been quite a fella as well. She must yeah. have looked amazing. I've, I've seen the odd picture of her. I'm thinking, oh, man. But, you know, obviously she had a lot going for her. She got away with it and lived a, an amazing life. She got married to someone else, lived in America for quite some time, then came back. And then there is another part of the story, which I won't reveal, but she actually met up with a very famous writer 
much later in the 20th century and is, is supposed to have uh, admitted her guilt to this said writer when she was probably in her 90s, I think, then. But, right. uh, but if you read the book, you'll read all about it. Okay. <laughs> I won't ask any further questions. <laughs> is there a brighter future for chocolate? It's got a very dark past. I mean, I'm talking about more about the exploitation of workers. Are we getting out of that hole? Well, sadly, you know, I mean, everyone goes on about the abolition of slavery, but it's never been abolished, has it? It's, it still goes on today. No, it's just by a different name, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, every now and again, the thing is, the world is watching now, isn't it? Yeah, you're going to be found out now. It's yeah, just a matter of time. Exactly. Whereas before, it was still thought hideous. Yeah. But Let's just sweep it under the carpet because this is too horrible to deal with. Well, yeah, <laughs> I'll, I mean, it. I'll try to forget it. Interesting, though. Sorry, I'm I'm digressing a bit. It is it is relevant. Mm. Is the fact that there was a very famous war correspondent called Henry Neverson that went out to Sao Tome, which is an island in um, off the African coast, which was you know yes. dreadful for, for slavery, and he actually went and visited some of the plantations. This is around 1909, something like that. And he came back with these horrendous stories about how slaves were being treated, you know, and the, the British public were like, well, what's going on? Slavery's supposed to be abolished. This can't be going, this can't be happening. And so he revealed all these terrible, you can read some, some, of, some of the descriptions of the plantations and they're not nice. And of course, so he published all this and that is what forced Cabri to leave Sao Tome. Uh, that was the the power of the media then. Yes, it was a real scandal, wasn't it? Because of course, uh, the Cabris, well, and the Round Trees as well were Quakers, so against violence, against war, and it turned out that they were funding slave labour. Exactly. Yeah. So they they were forced out, but then they just moved into Africa and just carried on. But the thing is that that was the power of the media then. It's even more powerful today. And as I said, the world is watching and we now have an idea about the repercussions of clearing land, of, of the devastation that deforestation can cause, the pollution both in the waters and the air that cultivating and, and growing these cacao and sugar. Yeah, I mean, it's quite inefficient is cacao, isn't it? Because you don't get much usable product from the size of the plant. It's a great big tree, basically, isn't it? And you get a few pods and that's it. That's it. And then they're on to the next bit of land and then the next bit of land, you know, and it's just shocking that there's still child labour going on in, in, those, in a lot of those plantations. But there are companies like Tony's. Oh, I love Tony's. I don't know if you've ever had Tony's chocolate, but... Well, actually, one thing I've not mentioned, I should have mentioned it right at the beginning. I'm slightly allergic to chocolate and I don't eat it. <laughs> it's cocoa solid, so I can have white chocolate. That's Which some people don't really count as chocolate. No. <laughs> no, it's, I'm not um, anaphylactic or anything. And sometimes I crack and just Ooh. go, oh, I'm just going to eat a great big bar of dairy but milk and suffer the milk. consequences. I don't care. Really? It happens, oh, happens maybe twice a year. Yeah, Tony's are doing amazing things. If you can bear it and have a tiny little nibble, I wouldn't recommend you eat a whole bar because obviously I'd hate for you to be poorly. But just have a nibble of a square if you can, if you're ever able to buy some Tony's because it, mm -hmm. I, I don't really eat any other chocolate now, to be honest. Oh, okay. They do such a great range of flavours. I love salted caramel, which is their favourite. Uh, this is really, really good. But they are doing so much 
but the great thing with Tony's is that they they educate the farmers, you know, and they pay the farmers more money. So the farmers have got more incentive to do things the right way, you know, and that's that's really what we need to be doing. There needs to be more companies working and communicating and doing that training and liaising and meeting with the farmers and companies like Nestle, you know, are repeat offenders with child labor they keep getting fined but they'll just go back and do it again they can afford those fines that's the yeah i was about to say that's a problem but it's it's just pointless they make more money so they don't care no i know and and to be honest they're on a short leash with that because i don't think that that it's going to, it's going to be tolerated for much longer no i don't think it is i remember when fair trade started to become a a popular thing yeah and i think we'd been we'd been exploited by the sugar companies and the confectionery companies for so long that they yeah. just said these people aren't going to pay an extra probably 5p yeah just so it's fair trade they don't care yeah they just care about money yes exactly. and immediately we all went nope we're very happy to pay for it thank you yeah i know <laughs> and it wasn't even an issue yeah i i think every you know people are becoming more and more aware of all the global issues and we just we can't do it anymore you know it, it's going to stop and i think if it doesn't stop then i mentioned this in the book very briefly is i do think we will start seeing things like genetically modified chocolate which is already being experimented with by certain big companies so oh, really yeah which i don't know what that will be like or how that will work or whether it's just transferring one lot of exploitation to another i really don't know but i, I we certainly can't go on the way we are yeah it's like once if you start making a product by exploitation it just seems that they can't shake it off no exactly they can't they can't think outside the box they no. just swap it for another kind of exploitation exactly i know and some companies are a lot worse than others yeah and i guess you just need to look at your bar of chocolate and if there isn't something saying fair trade then it's not fair trade exactly <laughs> exactly just don't bother with it oh well, it's been lovely speaking to you thanks very much for your time oh do you know what it's been it's been lovely neil it's so nice to put a face to that little virtual um, character that, uh, you know, I've spent time emailing and, and messaging on social media. So it's it's really nice to meet you, sort of. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's been really good to have a chat. And, and good luck with the book as well. Thank you. Perfect stocking filler, we should say at this point. Yes. <laughs> Christmas is coming. Our big thanks to Emma for sparing the time to talk to me about her new book, A Dark History of Chocolate. Yeah, there's links to her book, in the show notes and if you fancy checking her out on social media her twitter handle is at museum of kitchen and she's museum of kitchenalia all one word on instagram for subscribers out there there's a couple of easter eggs to go with this episode on the website emma and i talk about well we went off topic quite a bit <laughs> but it's stuff that i think some of you will still find interesting because we talked about our approach to food history writing the importance of cooking historical food when you're doing history writing, and what happens to your hobby when it suddenly becomes your job. Also, we talked about Roald Dahl's love of chocolate and, of course, his book Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which is a very dark story. I'm going to be constantly adding things to the Easter eggs section of the website. To get there, go to BritishFoodHistory.com and click on the Easter eggs tab. A subscription is just £3 a month, and everything I receive will go back into making more content. Alternatively, 
you can just treat me to a virtual coffee or a virtual pint, go to the support the blog and podcast tab on the website. But also, don't forget to like and subscribe or tell a friend or two. And please, please, please leave a comment on whatever platform you prefer to procure your podcasts. I will be eternally grateful. As usual, if you've got any questions, comments or queries about anything from this episode or any episode in the podcast so far, please get in contact via email at neil at britishfoodhistory.com or on Twitter at Neil Buttery or Instagram at Dr. That's D-R underscore Neil underscore Buttery. I shall be doing a regular postbag episode and there's going to be one of those coming up later on this season but it's not too late to appear in it if you've got anything that you want to send. Until next time, please take care. Bye-bye.